I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. You can tell I'm happy to be in chapter 2 after some time in chapter 1. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 1 through 4 tonight. But before we get to our passage, I'm going to ask you a question. What do carpet, drum sets, Sunday school curriculum, and slices of ham all have in common? All of these things have been sources of disunity in the church. These things, along with a thousand other Trivial and not-so-trivial things have caused a loss of love or uh, hurt between God's people, brothers and sisters in Christ. And these things have even caused church splits. Whether it's the use of the gym for basketball or bingo, or it's the brightness of the lights or the color of the lights, whether it's outreach methods or Bible translations or even philosophy of ministry, these things divide. They divide God's people. As the story goes, and whether it's true or not is up to you in Snopes.com, a church split of a church deep in the Bible belt began when an elder was offended that a child next to him in line at the church Thanksgiving banquet got a bigger slice of ham than he did. Now, as a father of three and one on the way, I just hope it wasn't his own kid. A slice of ham causing a church split. Disunity. It's something that in our inability and failure to love others like we should, in our selfishness and self-centeredness, in our flesh and in our pride, we are all prone to contributing to this disunity. We don't have to have all kinds of issues or theological problems or even overt sin for the unity of God's people to be challenged, to be contested, and then to be compromised. You see, the church at Philippi is exhibit A. As we have made our way through this epistle and continue to do so this year, Paul doesn't have to, if you've noticed, address any major theological issues. Uh, He doesn't give any stern warnings about false teachers or legalistic Judaizers. This church is one that is very clearly near and dear to Paul's heart. And I've got to imagine, at least in part, it's because this church doesn't give him many problems. They are, in a lot of ways, a model ministry. They're a well-oiled machine. And yet at the end of chapter 1, and here in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is still urgently calling them to pursue unity. In fact, it's an issue that we see creep up in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. He calls two individuals out by name and says, Help these two. I entreat 
Euodia, and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And Paul is doing so here earlier in the letter as well, except calling the whole congregation together to pursue unity. Unity that is befitting the people of God. And Paul is doing so because it is ever and always the danger that lies right beneath the surface for God's church. Disunity. And so if you're not there already, turn to Philippians 2, and we'll be in verses 1 through 4. Follow as I read. Paul the Apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. With the psalmist, we recognize that the unfolding of your words gives light, and that your word imparts understanding to the simple. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would work in our hearts and change our lives from the inside out, even tonight, as you give light and understanding through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at Paul's call for us to stand firm together and strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We looked at the certain opposition that we will face from a watching world that opposes and rejects God as we seek to faithfully live lives that are a worthy display of the gospel. An idea we see in chapter 1, verse 27. Look there again to see it again. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This idea of a worthy life extends from chapter 1, verse 27, as we said last week, to chapter 2, 18, and then continues to reverberate through the rest of the book. Here in the beginning of chapter 2, we see that a life worthy of the gospel, a life that reflects and displays for all to see the beauty and the worth of the gospel not only stands firm and strives in unity with others as a witness to the world but it also in humility in humility pursues unity for the sake of others in the church so let's look at this humble gospel reflecting kind of unity and it's beautiful impact on the church and let's look at it under three headings tonight i want to give them to you up front first we'll look at the fuel for unity the fuel for unity and then the joy of unity and then the key to unity the fuel for the joy of and then the key to unity first the fuel for unity in verse one paul begins this section with the word so, or therefore. 
in some of your translations. There is a significant connection between what we saw last week in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, and our text tonight in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul is saying with just even that one word, in light of what I've called you to already, this outward-facing, not frightened in anything, gospel progress-focused sort of unity that I've already called you to, consider now what this same unity that I've called you to should look like on the inside, inside God's house, the church. You see, what looks like to the world a unified and bold witness to the gospel in God's church, within the people of God, should be a humble pursuit of unity exercised for the benefit of one another. It's the same unity, but it looks different from the inside. It's got this kind of heart that we're going to see tonight. For all the boldness and the tenacity that we saw last week in our witness and in our unity in that witness, today we see a tender and humble unity looking to the interests of others. Paul gives us first the basis for our unity, uh, the basis for our pursuit. We'll call it the fuel for our unity, the motivations, the reasons why we seek this unity. Uh, These are things that should compel us to pursue this unity that is worthy of the gospel. Look again at chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And we'll stop there. This first verse helps us to understand that this is unity, not just for unity's sake. This is unity not just based on some arbitrary connection that we have with one another. It's not just unity based on our comfort level with one another or our likes and dislikes, or even our brewingness together. This is unity fueled by God-given realities here in chapter 2, verse 1. If you've ever built a campfire, you know you need a certain kind of wood. Evenly sized pieces are the best. The wood needs to be dry, and if you're a An Eagle Scout, you know all the right kinds of wood that uh, we should try to use. I just used Google. Oak is a good one. Well, here in verse 1, Paul is giving us neatly chopped, perfectly dry oak. And he's neatly stacking these four pieces of wood in the fire pit. And it will give us Uh, a fire in which we can warm ourselves and uh, be drawn toward unity. You see here in verse 1, this is God-wrought fuel for gospel-worthy unity. Now Paul here uses unique phrasing here. The ifs in this verse could be, for the sake of understanding the logic, could be understood as since or because it's, you see, not just if these things are true, it's because or since 
these things are true. Although, if we did that and sort of substituted those words, which is why so many translations don't do that, we lose the rhetorical effect of having the word if. You understand how you talk this way. You know, if you're a true Dodgers fan, you'll tune into the game. It's a rhetorical use of the word if. These, uh, here in verse 1, are gifts of grace that God has powerfully provided in our salvation. They are objective certainties. They are becauses and senses. Things above us, yet things that ground us in this truth. And here, Paul is showing us that these provisions, these certainties, these realities are the very fuel for our obedience to God. This section, this verse is so rich. We could, we could spend the rest of the night looking just at these four truths, but we'll go through them briefly. The first is, uh, if, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, this word encouragement is the word that we often see associated with the help or the comfort that the Holy Spirit provides. He is the paraclete, the help. Uh, but this is the help or comfort found in, look at your text, Christ, right? It's found in our union with Christ. It's in Christ, in our being joined with Him, him in salvation. It's the truth we see in Romans chapter 6. Just turn there to see that. Romans 6 is a key passage in understanding our union with Christ. The fact that we are in Christ as Christians. Romans 6 verse 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And so, this encouragement, this comfort that we find in Christ in Philippians 2 verse 1, is that in His dying, in His being buried, in His being raised to life, we can find security in our salvation, and therefore comfort and help and hope as we share in His sufferings. Because we know we have been raised with Christ to newness of life and will one day be with Him, still united to Him. This is exactly what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 1. Turn there to 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1 and what often in our minds is something we just breeze past in the beginning of these epistles. Look at verse 3. There is the same truth, a twin passage to what we are seeing tonight in Philippians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, 
so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort to Turn back to Philippians 2. Paul is saying in 2 verse 1 that since you all have this shared reality, this experience of comfort in Christ, as you suffer for Him before a watching world, as a witness to the faith of the Gospel, Paul is saying further pursue the unity you already have with one another. Be drawn together in the fact that as you share in suffering, you also share in the comfort, in the encouragement found in being in Christ. That's encouragement in Christ. Secondly, Paul says, if there is any comfort, or some of the translations say, any consolation from love, now, this is most likely a reference to the love of God. Consider a familiar verse, 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is, what? From God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God is the fountain of love, but He has also set for us the pattern of love for one another. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 to see the comfort of God's love. Romans 5, look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Romans 5, here we see Paul's thinking in regards to the hope, the consoling or comforting role of God's love that has been poured out in our hearts. And notice the context of this passage uh, just like the other ones we've seen already tonight, it's in the face of suffering. We rejoice in the hope of glory, even in the face of suffering. And so back in Philippians 2, Paul is saying, because you have experienced the comforting or the consoling effect of the love of God in your hearts, uh, both while you were dead in your sin, and now, even as you suffer, now live out that same comforting, consoling love toward one another in unity. Take a divine reality that is the comfort of the love of God and live it out in unity. Third, in this verse, Paul says, if there is any participation in the Spirit, this is the fellowship we have in the Holy Spirit as believers. This word we've seen before, it's koinonia. It's a familiar word to all of us. Some of your high school fellowship groups were called koinonia. Uh, we've seen it already in Philippians. Look at chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul commends the partnership of the Philippians. He says, because of your partnership, or koinonia, fellowship, in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the fellowship we have 
uh, in the Spirit. This is a phrase that is used, don't need to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, the very last verse in Paul's book, his letter to the Corinthian church, where he's defending his apostleship, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. This is shared participation, a, a very real and powerful connection in the common reality of the Spirit of God dwelling in each of our hearts. We know the benefit of the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. We could go through the entirety of Romans chapter 8 and see the benefit He has for our lives left as a helper by our Lord Jesus, promised in the book of John. He has a comforting role, a confirming role, a convicting role, a sanctifying role, and so much more in our lives. And so Paul is saying, as we benefit from our fellowship in the Spirit, and we, by His power, are to be agents, participants of the same blessing we experience in our lives by the Spirit, in the lives of others also as we pursue unity. Lastly, in verse 1, Paul says, if any affection and sympathy, affection and sympathy, this speaks of the compassion and the mercy afforded to us by Christ in salvation. Uh, this word affection, it's splankna. It's a word we've seen before in chapter 1, verse 8. Look at that. Uh, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection, the splankna of Christ Jesus. Paul's affection in chapter 1, verse 8 for the Philippians being the very same Splankna, or inward parts, the guts we talked about, uh, being made of the same stuff or substance as the affection with which Christ loves us. And so Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 1 here, if there is any affection, like the affection we've been loved with uh, by Christ, and any sympathy as well, Turn to Matthew 11. You need to see a little bit of the affection and sympathy of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 11. Jesus is preaching and telling of Himself. Matthew 11, verse 28. This is the affection and the sympathy afforded to us by Christ. Both at the cross, but in a continuing way. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the affection and Sympathy found in the Gospel expressed to us here in Matthew 11 by our Lord who is the great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses 
our Savior whose affection and tenderness we find in His love poured out on the cross and again and again over and over as we continue on in grace. We find solace in Him. And so in these four realities, in chapter 2, verse 1, our gratitude should be stirred up. Our affections should be enlivened by the reality of what God has done in our lives through Christ and by His Spirit. What encouragement, what comfort, what love, what affection, and what sympathy we find in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in what He has done for us and what He continues to do and what He will do to complete that work into eternity. And Paul's point here in showing us all of that is to show us that we need to express in our obedience to God our love back and our appreciation back to Him. And that we ought to express it toward others as well by humbly pursuing unity. Grace on Campus, as a note, as I've studied this verse this week, I want to just say anytime we are called to obey the Lord, it is never without basis. It is never without reason or adequate motivation that he asked us to do something in his word. There is always ample reason to obey our Lord. Always proper provision like we see here. Anytime God requires us to obey in any way, He gives in greater measure the grace and strength to obey. We often ask ourselves, should I obey even when I don't feel like it? It's a quintessential question in college ministry. And our answer should be, yes, obey, amen, and yes, obey the Lord. Let that be your instinct immediately as one who is His, even if you don't feel like it in the moment. But I think chapter 2, verse 1 is helping us to understand and form a groove in our pattern of obedience that we ought not to just let it stay that way. You see, I understand sometimes we have to fight for clarity Sometimes we have to reason out the logic of why we should obey. I I understand that. But what this passage is showing us is that there is always abundant fuel for obedience. There is always some line of gratitude we can have. Some provision of our union with Christ. Some encouragement and solace in the Spirit. Some great blessing we haven't been aware of that is flowing from the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. In response to all of that blessing, we ought to obey God. So here in Philippians 2, as we pursue specifically the unity in God's church that is befitting to the Gospel, let us be drawn toward a humble pursuit of unity by these divine certainties, these great Gospel realities in verse 1. That's the fuel for unity. Let's look now at the joy of unity. The joy of unity in verse 2. 
In verse 2, Paul defines the sort of unity we are to have. What this oneness within God's people is exactly. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now here we might expect Paul's instruction, Paul's logic to go straight to the commands, to unity. We might expect him to say, if there is these four things, be of the same mind. But instead, he inserts there, complete my joy. Why does Paul mention his own joy here? What is his joy have to do with it? Is this some kind of self-important insertion? Kind of a, don't mind me, but it would make me really happy if you did this. Is it that? Well, no, it's actually quite the opposite. You see, the unity that Paul urges the Philippians toward pursuing brings him joy because it would mean their growth in love and growth in faith. If there's anything we've seen from Paul in Philippians so far, it's that his joy is anchored to gospel progress. That in in whatever way, that Christ would be honored and that others might know and love Christ more, that is Paul's joy. As Paul is telling us that it would complete his joy if the Philippians were unified as one, this is just more of the same transcendent Christian joy that we have seen so far throughout this letter. Consistently and integrally, Paul's joy is found As we've seen in the camaraderie, in the fellowship, in mutual encouragement, he is with these believers. We ought not to look further than the beginning of verse 1. Look at 1 verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul's praying for them in the verses before that. And verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And then his prayer in verses 9 through 11 that your love may abound more and more, which uh, leads along this golden chain of God's work to verse 11, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's joy has been and is now tied to the growth and obedience uh, in the love of these dear brothers and sisters the encouragement he has found in them. And so in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, complete my joy, he's simply saying, just so you know, I still feel this way about you. And for you to obey our Lord would make me joyful. Here in verse 2, it is these believers' growth in maturity, their humble pursuit of unity that Paul longs for. He longs for. Uh, it would complete his joy. They've already given him much joy. This would complete his joy. We have to pause and sort of reflect on the example that is Paul. 
that kind of selflessness and God-centeredness that Paul has in what makes him joyful. Paul characterizes the unity that would be of joy to him if these Philippians pursued. He characterizes it in three ways here. And these three things help us to see what genuine Christian unity is over and against the shallow and cheap imitations that we sometimes seek. First, he says it's, look at verse 2, being of the same mind. Uh, This is a phrase that we ran into last week in verse 27 of chapter 1, where it says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, One mind, this idea invoking the, the picture of the church as the body of Christ, of which Christ is the head of that body. And so each member of the body is working in concert with one mind. This is being like-minded. Also in this phrase is the idea of having the same purpose, having a mind that thinks the same way, a, a sameness of intent. As we've clearly seen in Philippians 1, that purpose is the progress of the gospel, both in the world around us and in our own hearts and in the hearts of others around us. Consequentially, gospel progress is something also that brings Paul much joy. We've seen, even when that progress is at expense to Paul's own self, he is joyful in that progress. Secondly, Paul describes this unity as having the same love. So not only being of the same mind, but having the same love. Now, as I thought about this phrase, this might ordinarily, I think, if you said it to anyone, be sort of a throwaway description for how we ought to be unified, right? One love, man. We got kind of a Bob Marley, sort of carefree, sort of vibe from that phrase. We didn't know better. Now, to Paul, it is something much more serious. It is a divine reality. To Paul, having the same love is having experienced the love of God in Christ truly and savingly, and therefore, here, having our hearts warmed to love Him and to love others. Now, we began this year looking at this passage, turn to John 13, because you need to see again with fresh eyes uh, this passage, John 13. It's a, it's a set of verses, two, these two verses uh, are verses that you should wear out in your Bible. You should underline them. You should put a star by them. You should highlight them. They are so key to uh, the Christian life. Straight from the lips of our Savior. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Before the cross, our Savior instructed His disciples to love 
like he loved them. And look at John 15, verse 13. He describes what he is about to do. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Philippians 2 is telling us, Grace on Campus, we ought to have a love for one another patterned after the love of Jesus for us on the cross. A love that is sacrificial, a love that is selfless, a love that is faithful to the end. Paul is saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and then finally being in full accord and of one mind. This third description of this Christian unity uh, is in the NASB, I think, more helpfully translated. It says, united in spirit. And then that same phrase, of one mind, but and the NASB has it, intent on one purpose. Uh, now, this word uh, spirit, or uh, in ESV, uh, being in full accord, uh, it's not the same word, uh, spirit, as the word for the Holy Spirit, but instead uh, a different connotation, a word related to the word soul. It's pursuing, pursuing unity of soul or singularity of the inward affections. This is being harmonious in our attitude. See, not just in the way we think, but in the way that we, in a sense, feel, or the way that we are navigating our affections and our attitudes with one another. We ought to be of the same mind and of the same heart. This is moving and feeling and thinking together in harmony. And then Paul concludes his description of this kind of unity by saying again, of one mind. The like-mindedness, thinking together toward this unity of purpose. This kind of unity we see here in verse 2 is what our Lord prays that we would have in John 17. Look there, John 17. John 17, verse 20. This is the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying for his disciples, but also, as we'll see in verse 20 here, he's praying for us. John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, that's us, through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is Jesus' very prayer for us, that we would be one, modeled by his unity with his Father. We, that we would be one so that the world would see the grace and the peace found in the gospel. This is the kind of unity that Paul is saying in Philippians 2 that we ought to humbly 
pursue. Now, this past Sunday, my 49ers played the Philadelphia, Philadelphia, I can't even say it right, Eagles, in case you're a fan, and we lost, I'm sorry to admit, and that game hurt, like literally it hurt, like the quarterbacks all got hurt, now give me, now give me excuses, we can talk after. That morning at a church in South Jersey, instead of Amazing Grace or even songs about rising up on eagles' wings based on Isaiah 40, any kind of other song would have worked, but during a service, this church sang the Eagles' fight song, which I was tempted to read the, the words to it, then decided against it. It's half song half chant, wannabe eight-clap kind of style, but all, in the words of a 49ers fan, all lame. I'll spare you the vitriol that Twitter theologians and discernment bloggers had, rightfully, over that incident. Simply to say that as a church gathered together on the Lord's Day, these Eagles fans forsook the beautiful treasure of their unity in Christ their oneness of purpose in the gospel, their singularity of love for God, and traded it in that one moment during a worship service for their unity over a football team. Now, I can't imagine what might happen Super Bowl Sunday, and especially if they win. We'll see. Grace on Campus, as silly as this church sounds, this is exactly... What we so often do when we prize superficial unity over the unity we have in Christ. When what brings us together as God's people isn't the advancement of the gospel or the love we have for our Savior and therefore our love for one another. Or it isn't the depth of real spiritual connection down to our very souls. We are left with cheap, short-term imitations of unity. When we let the affinities and the stuff of this world define and dominate our sense of unity, we're in trouble. We're singing the Eagles' fight song, so to speak. Whether we find a sense of unity via who we naturally like and dislike or in our shared taste of food and Netflix shows, or even in what class we are in in GOC, or even what ministry team we serve on. If all of these things don't find their grounding in Philippians 2, gospel unity, if these things run deeper or become more familiar and even sweeter than true Christian unity, we've lost our way. And we must return And be reminded of the truth here in verse 2. Grace on campus, let us humbly pursue the unity we find in this passage. Uh, That we would join together in greater purpose. In the love with which we have been loved. In the depth of our very souls. And find the very same joy that Paul himself has in this kind of unity. 
This is the kind of life that is a demonstration of the worthiness, of the beauty of the Gospel. And finally, in this passage, in verses 3 and 4, we see the key to this unity. The key to unity. Paul has shown us the fuel for our unity in those very specific and precious gospel truths in verse 1. We've seen also now the joy of Christian unity in that it facilitates the events of the gospel and stirs our hearts toward greater affection for Christ and for others. And here finally now, Paul shows us the key to unity. This is the key that unlocks the passageway from mere uh, appreciation in our hearts for all of the good and gracious gifts we saw in verse 1 to an actual active participation in the joyous reality of unity in Christ with one another. And verses 3 and 4 show us the first few steps out of the starting block in this pursuit of unity. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here in these two verses, Paul shows us the core attitude that is the key to unity. And it's there in the middle of verse 3. Humility. Humility. You see, when we consider what it means to be unified, whether it's with your class here in GOC, or it's your apartment, or your friend group, or it's with others at Grace Church who might be different than you, there's a tendency in our hearts to get frustrated in your view of things because the reason for a lack of unity in our minds is, well, I mean, do you want me to list it in order of importance or alphabetically? He doesn't know how to listen. She takes too long to reciprocate. He doesn't wash dishes when it's his turn. She walks too slow. We play the the blame game when it comes to our unity issues. Our minds jump straight to all of the things that other people do or what other people don't do. We think those things are the keys to solving the unity problem. If they would just fix that, we would be a little more unified. But Paul is giving us here the real key to Christian unity. And it's not our discernment or our judgment of others. It's our humility before others. If you want to begin the path toward the kind of joyful, loving unity that is a worthy display of the life-changing truth of the gospel, you must pursue humility. Paul defines humility in a practical sense right there in verse 3. Look there. It's to count others more significant than yourselves. In true humility, there is indeed lowering or deflating of your opinion of yourself, which is how we often rightly think of humility. 
But here, Paul helps us to understand that humility is not just about us. Inherently, humility is also the counting or the regarding of others as more significant than yourself. To rightly view yourself and to rightly view others, we must recognize the unworthiness of each and every one of us. Like the tax collector in Luke 18, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And then we must see that in Christ, our brother or sister has value as a restored image bearer, as one made in the image of God. And then, though fallen, regenerated and redeemed, precious in His sight and an asset to the kingdom, a trophy of grace. And so anything he or she may do should not compromise the love and the estimation you have of them in Christ. Paul gives us the negative of this command in the beginning of verse 3. He says, do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That is to say, do not be driven by your own self-advancement, your own betterment, or any kind of pride that would put you first. To get a sense of this selfish ambition, turn to James chapter 4. It's a passage we looked at last year as we studied the book of James. James chapter 4 gives us this idea of selfish ambition. James writes there, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That passage equates selfish ambition, the passions, the desires within us, for stuff, or positions, or betterment, for just ourselves as friendship with the world, which is also enmity with God. It would be returning to our former state as enemies of God to think or to, uh, to want that way in our selfish ambition. And Paul is saying in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, pride. You see, in order to begin a pursuit of Christian unity, instead of living for yourself and for your own good, you must assess yourself rightly before God and before others and pursue a path of living where you continually become less significant and where God and others become more significant. The way that you think about others and the way that you talk 
to others and the way that you talk about others, the way that you listen to others, the way that you care for others and pray for others ought to reflect your rock-solid belief that they are more significant than you. In fact, verse 4 piles it on. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There ought to be more worth, not only in how you view other people compared to how you view yourself, other people's interests, other people's needs, other people's desires should become integrally part of your own cares and affairs. You could say it this way, if your brother or your sister in Christ gets a bigger slice of ham than you, even if you really do like ham, in humility, you would not only be okay with that, you would find good and true reasons in your heart that they deserve it. Humility drives you to look out, not just for yourself, but also for others. This is so hard. This, this is unnatural to us. On a pursuit of humility, Calvin says this, if anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is so. Grace on campus, in my study for this week and in my study of Philippians and in my love and in my consideration of where our ministry is at, I'm compelled to do something that we don't often do. And that's to step aside from our study of Philippians for a few weeks and to do a topical study on this virtue of humility. In examining my own heart, I need this study to learn and to humble myself before the mighty hand of God. And my prayer is that it will be immensely helpful to each of you as well as you are in this season where you have 10,000 reasons to be proud of yourselves and all you guys accomplish. You're young, you're smart, you're gifted. And so my prayer is that in this formative time in college and in this next few weeks that God would establish in your hearts a desire to navigate the rest of life in a trajectory that is humbly aware of its constant need in Him. And so we'll spend the next few weeks looking at the topic of humility, and I pray that we'll find it helpful. As we close, I want to focus our hearts back on what we've talked about tonight, though. This humble pursuit of the joyful unity that is ours in Christ. And I want to do so by reading Ephesians 4. You can turn there if you'd like. Ephesians 4 and the first six verses I think are helpful. Another twin passage to the things that we've been considering tonight as we seek to pursue unity in a humble way. Paul writes there to the church in Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of 
of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the reminder from Your Word that we ought to pursue the unity that really is already ours in the divine realities You've given to us. Uh, That, Father, in Your Word, You show us that uh, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so it's in one spirit and in one hope of the the glory that is to come uh, that we pursue uh, this kind of humble unity. So Father, work in our hearts, even tonight, as there is a lot of fun to be had and a lot of uh, craziness and a lot of enjoyment tonight, that we would take the time at some point to also, though, Lord, consider Uh, where we might fall short in our pursuit of unity, whether it be the humility required uh, or the awareness of divine realities you've provided for us or even the joy that ought to be anchored when we see, uh, anchored in this kind of unity. And when we see the unity that is uh, the body of Christ, it ought to cause us to be uh, joyful. And so, Father, help us tonight, even now as we ponder your truth, Uh, that, Father, as we respond, we would respond in gratefulness to you, O God, uh, the God who is over all and in all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.